This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our two-time celebrity guest scorer, host of the streaming circuit, Adam Hitchcock. Hello, how's it going, guys? Glad to be back. How are you tonight? Uh, I'm not going to lie, I'm playing Hurt at lunch today. I bit the inside of my lip, so it was a little painful. But you know what? I'm not Kawhi Leonard. I have a pain tolerance, and I'm going to play. Yeah, you root for the other L.A. team, unfortunately. Hey, they beat your team. I don't even want to hear it. They beat the Bucs. It's going to be one of our 27 wins this year, and it was against the Bucs, so I am thrilled. (laughs) Yes, you can stack up those wins that the uh, Bucs seemingly have against some of the worst teams in the NBA. The Rockets, the Spurs, the Lakers. Yeah. My teams are not good. I will not defend this Lakers team. They are horrible, and it's been quite a miserable fandom since they won a few years ago now the question becomes whether anthony davis can truly win an mvp by dragging that sorry excuse for a team to a 10th seed no (laughs) i don't think he should either but there are people saying it everyone's giving him his roses this week and not to completely hijack this into a sports podcast but this is kind of what i expected from him when we traded for a 26 year old you know supposed superstar in his prime i kind of expected this so i'm not too excited. I'm like, oh, thank you. We waited three years and 17 injuries to give us this when we suck. Thanks. Anyway, that's not why we're here. <laughs> Let's get to the movie of the evening at hand. Tonight, we apply our patent pending Stanley rubric to Elf from 2003, directed by John Favreau, written by David Berenbaum, starring Will Ferrell, Zoe Deschanel, James Kahn, Bob Newhart, and Ed Asner. Elf is often ranked among the greatest Christmas films and airs annually on television and some theaters during the holiday season. So I'm just going to give a fairly generic softball question. Why are Christmas movies so comforting to a general audience? Uh, I think they just bring us back to a time when we were kids and Christmas was magical, you know, and we all, we all want stuff to believe in. And I think these movies, you know, give us that for, 90 minutes to two hours. Surprise, surprise. I'm going to take a little more of the cynical view, which is their themes of love, family, and overcoming challenges. And at Christmas, even the worst families strive to pretend that they achieve those. And so they look at this as being the idealistic family situation, and that's why they uh, enjoy them. It, it, for some, it achieves what they can't fulfill. I'm going to go for a simpler explanation. What do the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, and Paul Thomas Anderson have in common? None of them has made a Christmas movie. (laughs) Yeah, okay. All the great directors stay away from these because they're supposed to be basic platitudes of warm, gentle, friendly kindness and peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And none of those directors 
have made a movie that says anything like that. Well, once upon a time in Hollywood, come on. Yeah. Can you imagine a Scorsese Christmas movie? There'd be blood coming out of the stockings over the mantle. I don't think it would be quite that because he's not like a horror film director, but he would have to be the most cynical Christmas person that you can think of. I actually think Martin Scorsese could do it due to the amount of Catholic guilt that he's been trying to get out in his films for 40 years. (laughs) But I just don't know necessarily who he would pick on. Is DiCaprio Santa Claus? No, no, no. See, I don't think he'd go at Santa Claus. I think it would have to be some Judeo-Christian themed thing. Like some, some salvation of the world coming, but I really don't know how you'd play with the idea. I mean, he did The Last Temptation of Christ, for gosh sakes. I don't know. As far as Christmas movies, they're like a warm blanket on a cold evening. They just make you feel better. And I think we all just assume that we kind of just feel like we're supposed to watch them. It's like, all right, December, you just kind of like, you have to watch a Christmas, you know, that's kind of just what you're supposed to do. Look at the popularity of the Hallmark Christmas movie. They just keep churning them out. Or Lifetime. And now everybody else is trying to get into the game because those two channels alone make such a profit on pumping these out year after year. Now you got Netflix, Hulu, Prime, everybody else, HBO Max, producing all of these random Christmas movies. And they'll probably do like three to five, not the 40 that Hallmark does every year. But even so, we we now have the played out storyline. So even the warm blanket has a very familiar feel to it. Just one comment, Scorsese's Christmas and Joe Pesci as Santa. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. It would be Bobby De Niro as Santa and Joe Pesci would be Papa Elf. Oh. Oh, yeah. And Danny DeVito would be hiding around somewhere. Hey, kid, what the fuck do you want? Come on. Danny DeVito is the... uh... DeVito's the guy that runs the mall in this movie. He's the, the manager. Oh, essentially what we're doing is, is Martin Scorsese remakes Bad Santa. <laughs> it didn't need to be made the first time. <laughs> oh. Oddly enough, tonight's movie was supposed to be directed by the guy that ended up doing Bad Santa because... This was a PG-13 script when it was originally written. John Favreau was the whole design behind making it more PG. Oh. Just some deep notes for you. Okay. So, what is your relationship to this movie, Dad? I was trying to think, and I think I didn't see this when it was released at theaters, simply because Christmas is always kind of a busy time, and when I go to the movie theater, I'm looking at not something just light. I'm usually watching the Oscar candidates. And so I think I first saw this on video, like maybe like the next fall, you know, leading up into Christmas. I didn't see this till I was in college. And it was only because a former roommate of mine who shall remain nameless had this on DVD and left it behind. And so I'm like, oh, this is like one of the very few Will Ferrell movies I've never seen other than night at the Roxbury's just because I don't like Chris Kattan. So I'll throw (laughs) this on. And uh, 
I thought it was good. I mean, it's not Anchorman. It's not old school. It's not Step Brothers. It's not Talladega Nights. But it's better than, was it The Candidate? Whatever political film he did with Galifianakis that was just truly awful. Or The Other Guys. Yeah. I've never been a big Wahlberg fan, other than when he was in The Departed. I laughed so hard when... You know, because they all the whole thing they were talking about it was starring Samuel L. Jackson and who else was it? Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson, and they die in the first three minutes of the film. <laughs> you don't like Wahlberg and Ted? Come on, not Fantastic really. That. The oh movie's about him being a vulgar teddy bear. Exactly. What's not? to love like i'm in because Wahlberg is completely <laughs> replaceable in that movie you could throw in matt damon and it works much better okay that's fair you got me there just need somebody to do the uh, new england accent well we got a lot of those people up here mm. that's for sure so then what is this movie about let's start with you adam do you want me to give my relationship to the movie too or oh sure i sorry i didn't mean to skip oh, no you worries. on that <laughs> no worries uh i really like it i saw it in theaters i was like eight or nine uh, when it came out. So this was like cotton candy to me. And it's in, it's in my three favorite Christmas movies ever. Uh, should I give those now? Or do we have like a later thing we want to do with like oh, our please. favorites? You might as well give it now. Okay. This is going to be very controversial. Second is okay. Christmas vacation, which is a classic. I don't think that's my, controversial. Well, no, but this one is about to be my favorite Christmas movie of all time is the Santa Claus two. Okay. I don't think that's that controversial. Really? That's good well, to hear. I've always been self-conscious about that. because. Well, first off, the original Santa Claus was good, but I think a lot of people, and I more vividly remember the Santa Claus 2 than I do the original Santa Claus. Oh yeah, first one, highly overrated. But I think it's much more controversial to try and incorporate, you know, the discussion we've been having for years is whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I maintain it doesn't really matter to me whether it is or it isn't. You just can't say Die Hard is a is not a Christmas movie in the same breath as It's a Wonderful Life is. Your only contribution is is that both have to be a Christmas movie because literally the only claim they have to being a Christmas movie is they happen at Christmas, or neither of them can be. Otherwise, we're incorporating things like Batman Returns. Mm, true. We had that uh, debate last year. Actually, we got to see my favorite Christmas movie this year because mom got outvoted. Scrooged. See, and I don't think that's all that controversial. My favorite Christmas movie is much more controversial. Oh, here we go. Hit me with it. What is it? Okay, we're waiting. You know what it is, Dad. Oh, well, no. Yeah, I know. And I don't know if it's that controversial. I mean, it was released for theaters. And a lot of it is taking place at Christmas. That's the reason why I would say that it's a little controversial. Love Actually. I'm a sucker for rom-com. Wow. Interesting. Huh. Yes, he, he likes to keep a box of Kleenex next to him while he's watching some of these movies. And That's only because my nose runs. Yeah, okay. Well, I don't know if I believe that. I mean, come on. Well, there are certain scenes where I will tear up. I am a sympathetic crier. Mm, I cry at a lot of movies. I cry all the time. I really teared up at the end of Everything Everywhere All at Once a couple of weeks ago when I finally watched it. Oh, the God last man. half hour is just so emotional. Yeah. Yes, by the way, you're in, you predicted 
your mother the whole time. I, I turned the movie off four times because all she did was kept complaining. What's going on? I don't understand this. This is really stupid. And I turned off. No, put it back on. You're not enjoying it. I'll watch the rest of it myself. Now, you're going to finish it. Then the last <laughs> half hour, she's like, why couldn't this whole film been like the last half hour? Because you have to build up to that. Here's a controversial take. That movie, eh, meh. Wow. I really hope it does not win Best Picture. Ar- arguably, I think it might be the best thing I've seen this year. Oh, my over Top Gun Maverick? Are you kidding me? Oh, yes, me? absolutely better than Top Gun Maverick. I thought it was okay, oh, but my, no. Oh, my God. Okay, I'll give you a little bit of a preview. I have my top ten. So, first off, I rank every movie I see every year. And so far, I have my full list of the 22 films in 2022 because we just have not had a lot of good films come out that are worth me seeing. I agree with it's, that. A stretch that already Top Gun Maverick is number five on my list. You're kidding me. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding you. You think there were five movies that were better than Top Gun Maverick this year? Yes. Yes, I Ooh. do. That is a that is a spicy take. So I have all twenty-two of those. I also have all fifty-two seasons of TV that have come out this year that I've ranked individually. And I will be revealing the top 10 of each list next week on our last episode of the season. But uh, yeah, right now, and this could get displaced if I see a couple of other movies that kind of come in. But I'll just say there there are a couple of other high-ranking movies that were big, let's say, tentpole movies. that uh, And Everything Everywhere All at Once came in above that one. They were better blockbusters than Top Gun? Okay, so, sorry, I don't want to derail this. I, this is flabbergasting to me. Wow. Are you an Avatar guy? Do you think that's going to beat it? I do, no, I'm not a big Avatar guy. We just got done reviewing that one last week, the original. I have yet to decide whether I want to see the sequel. But for Top Gun Maverick to be my fifth best movie of the year isn't saying that it's a bad movie. It just doesn't work for me as well as I think Mission Impossible will next year. I'm excited for that. I've always enjoyed Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. I as well. Except but, there's yeah. one episode or one that you can't stand. What, Mission Impossible? The yes. second one? The John Woo film? <laughs> yeah, that wasn't great. That, that was... Uh, I, I have vowed never to watch it again. It is on my shit list like every Michael Bay movie. <laughs> well, that's what ruined it for me. I was a huge fan of the TV series when it was first playing when I was a kid and then watched it in reruns. I watched. I went to the theater and saw Mission Impossible One. Then I saw Mission Impossible Two and went yuck. And I haven't watched one since. No, oh, that got a lot better. So three was okay, and that's the one that was J.J. Abrams and Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain. But really, they pick back up once you get to Ghost Protocol, and it kind of turns, I guess, towards what the modern aesthetic is. I still think that one is probably the best of them. I think that might be a little controversial. I think a lot of people thought Fallout was the best. My favorite one, though, is Rogue Nation, which I don't think gets enough of its roses. Five was my favorite. I, for, I think that's Rogue Nation. Yeah. I, I forget. The, yeah, that was my favorite one. So anyway, back to Elf. What do we think this movie is about? I thought this movie um, 
it was a lot about choice and the importance of choosing who you want to be. I feel like all the main characters by the end ended up choosing who they want to be over who they feel like they need to be or should be. Um, we see Buddy, you know, he's living maybe not a super happy life at the North Pole, but I mean, it's a pretty cozy life. But he chooses to go to his family because that's what he wants. And then he doesn't change who he is for his dad. He could have easily, you know, when he took off the tights in that really funny scene, um, he could have just been like just in the suit and just tried to be normal. But he chose to still be the elf because that's who he wants to be. And the dad chooses to his family over his job at the end. Um, so I think it's a lot about choosing who you want to be. So I definitely understand the identity angle of this. I just don't think it was the thing that stood out to me most. I think like a lot of Christmas movies, this movie has a lot of the redemption arc to it that in some ways, and I know this is going to be like stretching it even further. So maybe the elf two could be done by Scorsese, but there is kind of a messianic like nature to buddy. He comes in, he leaves his home to be among the regular people, and then he ends up saving all of his family, or those closest to him, and he redeems them. So I think family and redemption were the two that really stuck out to me. Well, I'm going to add one other, which is, to me, Buddy represents unconditional love. There's a reason why most guys really love their mothers, because for the most part, you can be a real asshole to your mother, and she'll still love you. That's unconditional love. And, you know, and I think that's part of it. Buddy just loves everybody and everything and doesn't have any expectations of getting anything back for it. He just always is willing to reach out and be genuine and caring about everyone around him without any requirement that he receive anything back for it. And to some extent, that's the definition of Christmas or should be. Well, should we give some more background on the film? Do you have a plot summary ready for us, Dad? I do. Buddy, Will Ferrell, is an orphan who wound up in Santa's sack and made it all the way back to the North Pole with him. Santa's elves take him in and raise him as one of their own. As an adult, Buddy is too large to stay with the elves, and Santa, Ed Asner, lets him go to New York City, where he sets out to find his birth father, Walter Hobbs, James Kahn. However, Hobbs is on Santa's naughty list because he's a heartless jerk. He has no idea Buddy is his son and treats him with disdain. Rejected, Buddy moves about the city experiencing the things through the eyes of an elf and causing problems wherever he goes. Thank you. Cast for this movie, John Favreau as director, David Berenbaum as writer, Will Ferrell as Buddy Hobbs, James Kahn as Walter Hobbs, Zoe Deschanel as Jovi, Mary Steenburgen as Emily Hobbs, Bob Newhart as Papa Elf, Ed Asner as Santa Claus, Daniel Tay as Michael Hobbs, Faison Love as Wanda, Peter Dinklage as Miles Finch, Amy Sedaris as Deb, Michael Lerner as Fulton Greenway, Andy Richter as Morris, Kyle Gass as Eugene Dupree, Artie Lang as the fake Santa, and John Favreau as Dr. Ben Leonardo. Recognition for this movie? Elf was released on November 7th, 2003. It grossed $176.6 million in the U.S. and Canada and $47.2 million in other territories for a worldwide total of $223.9 million 
against a production budget of $33 million. At the time of its release, Elf received widely positive reviews even from A.O. Scott, and he hates everything. Elf is often ranked among the greatest Christmas films, and it airs annually on television and some theaters during the holiday season. It is rated as one of the best or favorite holiday movies by these outlets. Digital Spy had it as number three, Total Film at number three, Games Radar Plus at number five, Entertainment Weekly at number four, San Francisco Chronicle had it at number four, The Guardian at number four, The Hollywood Reporter at number six, Forbes and Newsday had it at number seven, Empire Magazine at number 11, Chicago Tribune at number 17, and the New York Daily News at number 23. The film has also been popular enough to spawn a Broadway musical, video game, and animated special. Elf currently holds an 85% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 64 score on Metacritic, and a 3.5 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? Several minor traffic accidents occurred while Will Ferrell walked through the Lincoln Tuttle in his costume because people were so surprised and distracted from their driving to see him wearing an elf outfit. Did you know? The scene where Buddy eats different candies and pastries with the spaghetti noodles had to be shot twice because Will Ferrell vomited the first time. Did you know? Will Ferrell suffered from headaches throughout filming as he had to actually eat all of the sugary foodstuffs in the elf food pyramid on camera. Did you know? The cotton balls Buddy eats while in the doctor's office were actually cotton candy that had not been dyed. Did you know? Director John Favreau used a remote control to trigger the jack-in-the-box toys to get the startled reactions from Will Ferrell. Did you know? The film was able to use elements from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer from 1964 freely because that film is not properly copyrighted, containing an error in the Roman numerals of its copyright notice. Did you know? The design for Santa's workshop, as well as the elf uniforms, come from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer from 1964. The elf uniforms completely mirror the ones from the television special. Most of the animals in the North Pole are also designed to look like the same form of stop-motion animation used in Rudolph. Did you know? The apartment in which Buddy's dad lives is the same apartment building, for the exterior shot at least, in which Dana Barrett lived in Ghostbusters. Did you know? The scene where the fake Santa is chasing Buddy had to be done in one take because it was too hard to rebuild everything. Did you know? Wanda Sykes was originally slated to play the Gimbal's manager, but backed out at the last minute. She was replaced by Faison Love, who insisted on still wearing the name tag made for Sykes, which is why his tag inexplicably says Wanda. Did you know? Due to his policy of appearing in family-friendly films, Chevy Chase was briefly considered for the role of Papa Elf by director John Favreau. However, Will Ferrell vetoed the idea because he disliked working with Chase when he returned to guest host Saturday Night Live in the mid-1990s. Farrell said Chase was the worst host he worked with during his tenure on the show. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week, for our final episode of Season 3, we will be discussing possibly the best romantic comedy of all time, 1989's When Harry Met Sally, directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron, starring Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal, Bruno Kirby, and Carrie Fisher. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, best performer? Will Ferrell. His innocence and jubilance that he exhibits throughout the film. Jubilance? It's a good word. 
Are, are you Dr. Seuss? I am Miss Smoke. Exuberance. His joy and exuberance throughout the film just kind of lifted the film above the script and made it much more enjoyable. He came across as being innocent and joyful and pleasing and everything I've described so far. I have to give it to him. So I would assume that uh, since I also have him as best performer, this is going to make it a unanimous vote? Yes. Yeah, I thought Will Ferrell was electric in every scene. You just can't take your eyes off him. He's he's fantastic and hilarious. So I think he really creates the tone and the aesthetic for the film, and there are not many performers that could have pulled off what he does in this movie. It's difficult for a lot of comedians to be good physical humor comedians, that's one of the few great touches by Farrell, and he has so much physical comedy in this movie. Whether it's eating all of the sugary stuff, or jumping from the couch to the tree to try and put the star on, and then having it fall over on top of him. There are a lot of physical bits, but he still also has this knack for timing with all of the other jokes, the spoken word stuff. And so I think he's one of the few performers in a movie like this that's really not replaceable or interchangeable with somebody else. The other thing, as far as creating the tone, John Favreau apparently went to his, at the time, like three or four-year-old child and tried to base the character of Buddy on that because he tried to imagine what his young child would be like on all of that sugar. And so then he related that to exactly what Will Ferrell's character is. And Ferrell's believable as being completely childlike and innocent in the course of this movie, despite being in his 30s, and yet likable. I just don't think that an immature 30-year-old is going to be necessarily likable to a general audience, but he pulls off that trick as well. Yeah, I mean, well, he, he does that a lot. I mean, Step Brothers, he was pretty immature too. He, so he does that well. Yeah, I mean, I did my most recent season of the streaming circuit, we did 21st Century Comedies, and I named him the greatest uh, comedic actor of the 21st century ahead of Adam Sandler. Uh, Cause I just think he's now that's a hot take. I don't see. I don't think it is at all. I think for the 21st century, I don't think, I don't think Sandler's been all that great to be honest. I can, I think you can go back to the 20th century and agree with that too. Well, I think that's where the delineation lies for people that like Sandler, they are going to probably promote a bunch of his movies that came out in the nineties. So if you really create that dividing point, the Waterboy's out, Happy Gilmore's out, yeah, Billy Madison, Big Daddy, all of some of his like '90s favorites are out. So you're left with Fifty First Dates, Click, <laughs> Jack and Jill. What was it? was it? Murder Mystery or something? The Netflix one. Basically, anything he's done on Netflix. Uh, what was it about the Zoltan? Oh, Zohan. Yeah. Yeah, you don't, mess with with the the Zohan. Zohan. Don't, don't mess with the Zohan. Don't mess with the Zohan. Yeah. Yeah. I, <sighs> I Sandler I'm not big on because he I feel like he just plays the idiot all the time. And I just I think when he just just like a normal guy, he's very funny. But he, he always tries to go over the top. And Will Farrell also goes over the top in most of his roles, but I don't know, he finds a way to make it funny. And Sandler finds it makes it annoying, in my opinion. Not to take it too far away from the discussion of this movie, but I think there comes a point in every comedic actor's career where they have to transition from being the fat man to the straight man and 
Dad knows what I mean by the Abbott and Costello lines from that. But essentially, you have to go from being the butt of the joke to being the one who pokes fun at the person who's the butt of the joke. Essentially going from early career when Farrell is Anchorman, he's the buffoon, to eventually he's becoming the straight man later on in his career where he pokes fun at everybody else. And he's never truly made that transition, in my opinion. I think actually Sandler has done a better job becoming the straight man and being a little bit more of a serious actor in his later career, even though some many of his movies aren't like that much more successful, even as the straight man. I would agree with that. I mean, when he's dramatic, like in Uncut Gems, I thought he was really good. Although I thought Farrell was um, pretty good in Spirited when he was kind of more of the straight man than he usually is. And he, and I thought he was pretty good in that. Yeah. But I think that's also a stars vehicle. I mean, it's really hard not to be kind of drawn in. And I think Ryan Reynolds and his charisma just generally make up for a lot of things. Well, the only thing I remember watching spirited is that I went like on top of being that good looking a star and owning like major major companies that you branded, you can sing and dance to. Fuck you. Good afternoon, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. <laughs> Best secondary performance. I think this one will be a little bit more varied. I went with James Caan. I think he, and this has been a common theme in some of the other movies, like we did Misery earlier this year, but he has an ability to play a likable jerk. And again, that's not an easy trick. You have to have some level of charisma. The other part of this was, is no matter how bad he is in the movie, you have to feel that at some point he's redeemable. And I think part of that is played by the fact that Mary Steenburgen, who I absolutely adore, is in this movie. And even though his son seems to detest him at almost every junction, you can write that off because kids are supposed to be embarrassed by their parents constantly. But the fact that at least one person in the universe can stand him and find some redeeming quality in him, other than maybe Buddy, I think is what ultimately leads, okay, there's got to be something about this guy, and you're reaching and you're trying to find it, and he keeps trying to turn you off at every point. And you would think that you're relatable to James Conn. If you had a random 30-year-old show up in tights and say he was your son, I think you'd react in the same way that he does. So it's understandable where he's coming from throughout the movie. I think he becomes somewhat of the audience character, even though we like Buddy more. But the transformation that he has is the one that the catharsis of the audience has to go through in order to accept Buddy into the rest of the world. And so he's got a fairly difficult job to overcome that without also being so unlikable that by the end of the film, you just kind of throw up your hands. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, th- I mean, I, I think there's not a lot. Now, career-wise, he's awful, and I have some questions about what he's doing for his career. But like a lot of the decisions he makes, I mean, yeah, I think anybody would be kind of like, I don't really want to deal with this guy. Like, what is his deal? Is he even my kid? And then like, he doesn't choose to work on Christmas Eve. He's told by his CEO, you're working or you're fired. And initially he does. I mean, like, sorry, son, but if you want any sort of Christmas next year, I'm going to work this Christmas Eve. So, I mean, I don't think he does anything like really that bad, except, I mean, the freak out on Buddy when he tells him to get lost is like somewhat, but I think a lot of decisions he makes is are reasonable. So would you have as your best secondary? 
I had John Favreau. I think he understood this assignment. He knew it had to be funny and it didn't have to take itself too seriously. Kept it a tight 90 minutes, which I love. I don't think comedies should go, should ever really go more than 90 minutes. And this was not his first, not his directorial debut, but really put him on the map as someone to look out for and paved the way a couple of years later to direct Iron Man, which, you know, was huge. So I think he, a big winner from this movie was John Favreau. I had Khan for a lot of the same reasons you had, but he has an ability to convey a lot of emotion just by his facial expressions, which is one of the reasons why, like in Misery, he was so good. He was limited because he's bedridden. So much of what he was thinking, feeling, trying to accomplish was conveyed by his facial expressions. And in this film, he's sitting behind a desk and you can see where he's got this disdain towards Buddy. But Buddy said something about this girl that he used to have a relationship. And now he's going, hmm, you know, is it possible? And you can just see the wheels turning. I think that there are some actors that just have that ability to convey by a presence, a look, a way they hold themselves that says more than their speech or their actual acting ability in general. And Khan seemed to always have that ability. And I think this performance, even though it's in a comedy and it's a light comedy, just showed his acting chops. I'll move to my most charismatic then. I'm going to have to go very personal on this one. Forgive me, Dad, on many occasions you have said, well, I'm in love with so-and-so, and and that's why they're my most charismatic, and I can't think of anybody else. Much like Donna Reed two weeks ago for From Here to Eternity. But for me, it's somebody who I've had a celebrity crush on for, gosh, 20 years at this point, Zoe Deschanel. I don't know why. I can't put my finger on it. It's rather intangible, and yet she does it for me. I'm just always going to be drawn to her. She's a vampire, too. She doesn't. Age. She looks older in this movie than she does on New Girl, which took place like 10 years later. She just she is the ageless wonder. I, I had Peter Dinklage. <laughs> Whenever Tyrion Lannister shows up in anything, uh, you know, I'm in. And he just he comes into this movie like a flamethrower for four minutes and is just incredible. And, you know, call me an elf one more time is fantastic. He's an angry little elf. For anybody who doesn't understand that reference, that is a callback to a a very popular drama series from HBO called Game of Thrones. Just saying that for my dad and anybody else out there that isn't a part of the cultural lexicon. Oh my God, you haven't seen Game of Thrones? My dad is anti-fantasy. Oh, it's good. Just check it out. It's pretty good. I keep telling him certain things like Star Wars or the Lord of the Rings movies. I'll just get a guest host to come in. It's nothing like those, though. I mean, it's not even similar to Lord of the Rings, really. The only fantasy thing about it is the dragons. I mean, any everything else is very realistic. Well, um, not, a, not, not everything else. I take that back. But a lot of it is. I, I don't know how much incest there was really in medieval times. Oh, a lot. A lot. Okay. Well, and maybe. it was usually in the royal families. Even today, more than you think. Anyway. <laughs> well, I'm going to show my age, which is... Again, I knew you boy. were going to go here. I know. 
You knew exactly where I was going. Hi, Bob. Bob Newhart. I've always loved Bob Newhart. That was what growing up as a kid in the uh, seven early seventies. Saturday nights was all in the family. Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, and Carol Burnett would end the evening. Mash was on Saturday nights as well for a while. But Bob Newhart to me has always been hilarious. His his ability to be funny without overstatement. He's just such a subtle comedian. And even in this, it, it kind of is like the climax of Bob Newhart's career to me that he was able to do this film and make it into something that was going to be treasured for many generations to come. I think Bob's, what, 91 or 92 now? And uh, we're going to lose him at some point here in the near future. And it'll be one more lost moment or one more lost time in my childhood. I can honestly say I had the privilege of seeing him perform live and uh, just love, love the guy and love everything about him. And he just... He, he can be funny without having done anything, which is pretty good from a guy who was trained as an accountant. Of course you're showing your age here, Pop. You nominated for Most Charismatic, The Kindly Old Man. Well, of course. Anyway, best scene. I have nominated The North Pole, so basically the opening, I would say maybe 15 minutes of the movie. Christmas Graham which is the scene where he shows up in James Conn's office. Santa's coming, which his freak out in Gimbal's. And then I would even rope in his uh, overnight decorating. The elf food groups. So when we get introduced to what the four food groups of the elves are. Snowball fight, which is self-explanatory. The mail room, Miles Finch, and Santa's sleigh, which... We'll just incorporate the last, like, 20 minutes of the movie for that. Are there any particular things that I left out here that you would like to nominate? I I had Buddy in New York the first, when he's first getting there and he's, and that song is playing. I forget what the song is called, but I think it's it's like a jazz song. And I think it's really great when he's, like, hopping on the crosswalk and he's in this revolving door. And just him being in awe and wonder of New York City. Dad, did you have any I missed? No, but I remember you being in such awe of New York City when we weren't there for the first time. I didn't want to leave the hotel room. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I I don't do well with overcrowded and big. Uh, I love New York when I was there. I also had the, uh, I don't don't know if you, I don't think you said it, the shower scene. I can't remember if you said it or not. I did. I I thought about that as well, but... That's probably my second favorite scene in the movie is the shower scene. Oh, you're going to be destroyed when we get to classicness then. Anyway, Dad, what do you think was the best scene? The whole combination of Buddy at Gimbal's and his work. I, I just thought it showed his innocence. It kind of set the tone of the movie and where things were going to go from there in his relationship. I just thought that was the best scene because there was so much involved and so much that impacted the rest of the story. Adam, what did you think? I think Buddy in New York for the first time um, is the best scene. I'm a sucker for fish out of water with a needle drop. You know, that's I'm always in for that when someone's just exploring somewhere they've never been with some fun, funky music going on and they're up to shenanigans. I love it. 
I think if you're going for the emotional catharsis of the movie, I'd probably say the last 20 minutes and the Santa sleigh thing probably is the best for me. But if you're just going to a simple execution of the concept of the movie, to me, it's probably the elf food groups because it's one of the most revolting scenes at the same time. (laughs) It's easily the one that fits into the, the premise the best because it's, your concept of the fish out of water, but it's also all of the things that he's incorporating from being an elf for his entire 30 year existence, and then somehow making it into the real world and this mashup between the two. And so where those two things meet, I actually think that might be the best scene. Favorite scene for me, snowball fight. I think it's probably one of the best executed. And it's really kind of one of the understated turning points in the movie, because once he gets Michael on his side, He starts to really warm the rest of the family to the point where his dad kind of starts to feel more warmness towards him. And that's really where the redemption comes in for the entire movie arc. Kind of a snowball rolling downhill at that point. He gets Michael and then he gets the girl and then he gets the dad. And yeah. Yeah. My favorite scene is Miles Finch. It's just every time I see that. And when I think about the film, I just pictured Dinklage charging across that table and just beating the crap out of Will Ferrell. And I just start laughing because it's just so great. So needless to say, I'm going to say that's my most indelible because whenever I think of the film, I think of Dinklage just diving at him, just wanting to tear his him apart. We're in lockstep there. Also, my favorite scene in most indelible was the angry elf scene when he... <laughs> he has three houses and all with a 70 inch plasma and he's got some real ideas that he is stoked about. It's just fantastic. He is really pulling a heater in that moment. Yeah. He's like a super sub. It's no space pants though. No, it's not space pants, but that, that exists by itself in its own form of just pure joy and classicness. As far as most indelible, since you already preempted me on that, It has to be the most disgusting point in the movie, but it was led up to by Ed Asner saying, don't eat the gum stuck anywhere. It's not free candy. And then he's sitting near the subway and he's just picking off. Oh, God. Every time I think of this movie, I think of that one moment where he's just eating all the gum. Oh, it's not great. Dad? What? Most indelible. I already gave it. You did? Yes, I said Miles Finch is both my favorite and most indelible. Oh, or I missed that you had it included there. All right. I was just going to say, listen to the show, Tom. I'm begging you. Listen to the show. All right, that'll take us to our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Uh, yes, we do. Ruth Maddock, 79, British actress, was in High D High, Fiddler on the Roof, and Little Britain. She also was a singer. Carl Kleinschmidt, 85, American television writer, Wrote for the Dick Van Dyke Show, Gomer Pyle, USMC, and First and Ten. We also lost Richard Miller, 80, American visual effects artist. 
He was uh, involved in Star Trek, Pirates of the Caribbean, and The Rocketeer. Another small note, he is noted as the creator of the iconic Princess Leia bikini for Return of the Jedi from 1983. And I give great thanks for that. It's probably the second best cinematic uh, bikini next to uh, Dr. No. Ursula Andress? And Ursula Andress. We're trying to celebrate the dead here, Pop. (laughs) Angelo Badalamente, 85, American film and television composer. Worked on Twin Peaks, Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive. Won a Grammy in 1991. Georgia Holt, 96, American singer and actress. She was in Watch the Birdie, Crowns for Marriage. Subject of Dear Mom, Love Cher. And that's because she was Cher's mom. Ah, Helen Slayton Hughes, 92, American actress, Parks and Recreation. Crazy on the Outside, and Moxie. She's notable for any Parks and Recreation fans like myself. It still might be my favorite show of all time, as the infamous Ethel Beavers, who is revealed to have been having an affair with the mayor for the last 30 years, who famously is played by Bill Murray in the final season. Uh, Stuart Margolin, 82, American actor. The Rockford Files, he was in the movie Death Wish, and played Brett Maverick. Won an Emmy in 1979 and 80. He is a character actor that was around for a lot of my young life. There was used to be a TV show, um, Love American Style, he was a regular on. He did MASH. He did tons of television shows in the 70s. And then lastly, Grant Wall, 49, American sports journalist and executive producer for uh, Good Rivals. Yes, that's the recently released documentary on the USA versus Mexico international soccer rivalry. But I think for anybody that's of my age that kind of grew up with American soccer and the World Cup being a bigger thing in, you know, the mid-2000s, but really kind of growing in the last 10 to 15 years, I think you know who this person is, even if you may not know his name. He was a mainstay for basically soccer coverage as far as the American point of view for most people. Being a soccer fan myself and being a big fan of the U.S. men's national team, he was somebody I always looked at as somebody who knew the pulse of anything that was going on as far as international soccer. And then with his protests early on in this particular World Cup, leading into it with all the issues with the host country of Qatar, his, I guess, detainment, in the first initial match that he was going to be covering because he dared to wear a rainbow t-shirt into one of the stadiums. And then that blew up into another controversy to see somebody like that have a rather shocking and sudden death during one of the matches was something that uh, really was. And again, I'll reuse the word shocking to anybody that at least knew of him, knew his coverage and had appreciated his work for many years because he was not just a soccer journalist. He did a lot of work on college basketball. He did the very famous Chosen One cover for the SI spread when he was with Sports Illustrated that featured LeBron James as he was coming out of high school. He's a guy that's been around in sports journalism for a long time, and unfortunately we did get cause of death today as an aortic aneurysm, And it just, again, reminds us how short life can potentially be. 
So in the season of being together with the people that you care about the most, I'll just make that a extra emphasis in this one particular case for this week. So we take a moment here to appreciate all those that we've lost for all of their contributions that they've given to us in the arts and entertainment with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. And now we make our weekly awkward transition to best funniest lines. I'll start with my first one, Buddy. We elves try to stick to four main food groups, candy, candy canes, candy corns, and syrup. Santa, if you see a sign that says peep show, it doesn't mean they're letting you look at presents before Christmas. Buddy, he's an angry elf. Buddy. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Buddy, does someone need a hug? Buddy, great, I got a full 40 minutes. Buddy, did you have to borrow a reindeer to get down here? Hey, Jackweed, I get more action in a week than you've had in your entire life. I've got houses in L.A., Paris, and Vail. In each one, a 70-inch plasma screen. So I suggest you wipe that stupid smile off your face before I come over there and smack it off. You feeling strong, my friend? Call me Elf one more time. Buddy, giving the ultimate girl date. I thought maybe we could make gingerbread houses and eat cookie dough and go ice skating and maybe even hold hands. Although that was related to James Conn. Uh, I had a quote from Walter. No, I think we should take a $30,000 bath so some kid can understand what happened to a puppy and a friggin' pigeon. You sit on a throne of lies. Buddy, I'm sorry I ruined your lives and crammed 11 cookies into the VCR. Buddy, son of a nutcracker. You did it! Congratulations! World's best cup of coffee! Great job, everybody! It's great to meet you. Santa. Well, there are some things you should know. First off, you see gum on the street, leave it there. It isn't free candy. Buddy, I'm a cotton-headed ninny-muggins. Okay, this is one I didn't even recognize during the course of the film, but apparently it was said, so I got this only in picking these off the internet, but it is too good to pass up. Eugene, brainstorming for a new book. What about this? A tribe of asparagus children, but they're self-conscious about the way their pee smells. Oh, we got more <laughs> on that to come, I promise you. There's more on that scene to come. Yeah. Buddy, but I really want to see you, and I think you're beautiful, and um, uh, I really feel warm when I'm around you, and um, my tongue swells up. So, do you want to go and eat food? This one, I don't remember which writer it was from, one of the two nincompoops who write for him. He goes, what's more vulnerable than a peach? <laughs> oh, true. <laughs> I am out, gentlemen. I am too. I have one more. It was uh, from the Orca. Bye, buddy. Hope you find your dad. All right. If we're ready for the Stanley rubric, Legacy is up first. I think I'll lead this one off. So for the industry, I think this is a fairly lukewarm reception. I think, you know, there's not a lot of careers that are necessarily made off of this movie, but I think it's grown in stature since its original 
time in theaters. And so I go for a three for the industry just because, again, it's a Christmas film, and I don't think a lot of people necessarily choose this as like one of their biggest Christmas films or one that's synonymous with Christmas, like a Christmas story or something tied with a Christmas carol or it's a wonderful life for some people or even die hard for some other people. So I go for a three there. I'll go with a 4.5 though for the audience. Cause I do think that I've heard enough people in my generation that this is one of their favorite Christmas movies. And it's usually in people's like top three. So because it has such a resonance from a generational occurrence, I think this is one that gets a little bit higher on that grade. So I go for a 7.5 overall. Sure. I will go. I did four for the industry. I think in, in a lot of ways it did really boost John Favreau's career. It showed the kind of comedy chops that he could have. And I think it boosted Will Ferrell's career a lot. I mean, he, he had done Anchorman, I believe before this, but I think after this movie, it was really like he can do whatever he wants and he's the biggest comedy star in the world. So I, I think at four for that. And then for audiences, I went a five. There's really three movies that just play nonstop from Thanksgiving to New Year's and it's Christmas Vacation, Christmas Story, and Elf, I think are the three ones that you could find on cable pretty much any night whenever you're flipping through. They got a Broadway show after it. I think it just, it took, it became a thing of its own. It became something else with younger audiences and now passing on to their kids because kids, you know, teenagers who saw this movie now have kids and they're passing it on to them. So your overall score was? A nine, sorry. Okay. I said for the industry, 4.5 and I'm giving it higher marks because the industry figured out that this film makes money. The fact that they've made it into a musical, an animated special, a video game, and the fact that, you know, I've been watching a lot more of Pluto free streaming just because there's so much on there that's relatively simple and mindless. And if I'm coming home and I just want half an hour to unwind and not think. And they're promoting this film constantly as they are also Scrooged, as they are Christmas Vacation. It's playing on their channels all the time. So I give it a 4.5 for that. I think the industry has figured out how well-liked this film is and has used it for that purpose. The public, I think, still... Um, this is one where I, I will go around and just say, oh, we're doing Elf this week, and then watching people's reactions... And everybody has a positive reaction to this film. I've had nobody who's said, oh, what's that? Or, uh, well, it's okay. I'm not a real big fan. So I can't give it a perfect five because I don't know if people hold it in that level of esteem. So I wanted the 4.5. So I also have a nine. I will say this in its favor. It's one of the few times that I've heard people who are not Will Ferrell fans say that they actually enjoy one of his movies. It's so broadly appealing from an audience perspective that I think it crosses the I don't like Will Ferrell divide that some people have. Those people will be wrong, but yeah. Movies are subjective. So that's an 8.5 average between the three of us. Impact significance. Dad, go ahead. I think the industry, the critics liked it for the most part. I loved this. I read the A.O. Scott's review in the New York Times, so I had to put this down, and 
I wanted to put it on the show. Elf is a charming, silly family Christmas movie, more likely to spread real joy than migraine indigestion and sugar shock. The movie succeeds because it at once restrains its sticky, gooey, good cheer and wildly overdoes it. I mean, A.O. Scott has the ability to both praise and condemn everything he ever reviews. It is ridiculous how this guy can just be so cynical. He's had to have been married three or four times because I can't imagine any woman would put up with him making statements like this for more than two or three years. I mean, I just read his review on Sunday in the Sunday New York Times on the Fablemans, and I'm like, (laughs) So anyway, for the public, it made, what, ten times its budget? People loved this film when it was released. It was a it was huge for what it was supposed to be. And so I'm giving it a perfect five for that reason. So I'm going with a nine on this. I actually had the exact same thing. I had a four for impact. I don't think this movie particularly did a lot of things differently than how they had been making Christmas movies. I just think it, they did it better like in a bigger way and figured out how to make more money and figured out that just like let's just put one of the biggest stars in the world in the lead role and see what happens so i don't think they did like i don't think it changed the game necessarily for christmas movies i just think they did it really well and then yeah a five i mean when i was in college you know i just graduated a couple years ago i mean this was in every dorm room pretty much because I, I was an RA for a few years. So I'd, you know, and doing rounds, every door was open and almost every room was watching elf and people were eating candy and, and you know, ab- abiding by the food groups. And it, it's a phenomenon. It's something that I think it just becomes something else at Christmas time. And it's huge. Unlike any Christmas movie that I think of. I mean, I know the older ones, people love like it's a wonderful life and all that stuff, but I feel like people under like 35, this is their It's a Wonderful Life. This is their go-to Christmas movie. Excuse me, you were an RA. You were one of those people that I always tried to manipulate or hide from. No, I was a cool one, though. I didn't get people. I got, I always, we had like a quota where like we had to write one, we had to write at least one person up each semester. So I made sure I got my one and then that was it. My philosophy was a couple buddies drinking, you know, some Budweiser's and playing Madden is not going to, do any damage i'm not going to get anybody in trouble that's a lot okay. of paperwork it's paper yeah it's paperwork for me and i don't want to do that you know yes a lot of ras look for trouble i don't uh, i don't look for trouble i'm just like you know what if everyone's safe i don't you know whatever okay <laughs> so i had a nine for my total all right so as far as an audience share i'll go with a 4.5 i can't go with a full five i understand that this is a very popular movie when it came out but I think comparatively to some other films, I can't quite get it up to a five just because this is an era where we had some fairly big movies that outmade their budget that were modestly made like this and would produce at this type of level. We're coming out of the 90s where it was probably the king of theaters and of rentals and some of the other things that were going on. It was like the last great heyday of movies. So I think there was an audience for this. I think there continues to be an audience for this. And it's where the strength of this movie lies as far as its response in both legacy and its initial impact. But I think this is also a movie that the industry didn't know what it had. 
The industry was also very, you know, generally positive on a movie like The Polar Express. But really, the only time they're going to criticize generally broad messaging Christmas films are when they resemble Buddy's pasta candy or candy pasta. They're just too sickeningly sweet. When they get too sappy and too sentimental, that's where you turn off the critics. And I don't think this movie necessarily does that. It blends a lot of good humor and some antics with kind of the Christmas tie-in stuff, but doesn't necessarily hit you over the head with it. At the same point, this was originally written as a PG-13 movie that made Buddy the Elf be a much dirtier concept. It only took John Favreau and Will Ferrell trying to put this through the innocence of a child that we even have this type of movie. So from an industry standpoint, I just don't think that this was necessarily the thing that they originally wanted or knew what they had, and only in subsequent years have they been able to make sense out of that. So I actually gave it a 2 on that end. I ended up at a 6.5. Polar Express, overrated. Hot take. It It's okay. I'm not a big fan. Those dead eyes. I don't like them. The book was better. It's not the worst Tom Hanks film, but it's definitely not the best. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. So novelty. I'll just go from this point of view. Is there another really original premise like this from any other Christmas movie? Most Christmas movies are either about family They have a Santa and Elf concept, but it's usually not blending necessarily with the real world, per se. The Santa Claus might be the only exception to that. Or it's about something that's going on with relationships during Christmas. I don't think there's another concept or premise movie where somebody from the elven world mixes in and comes to the real world and then we get the intersplicing of the fish-out-of-water setting like we do in this movie. However, I can't give it full marks because it falls back on a lot of the familiar tropes and themes, but because it does, it feels familiar, and that's why I think people resonate with it. It's not too novel. It's not too strange to how they want their Christmas movies to be. It's got an original premise, and then it falls back on the stuff that it needs to in order to be successful in the end. So I went with an eight. I, uh, I went with a six. I found it to be kind of similar to the movie we talked about earlier, the Rudolph movie with Curtis, where di- completely different circumstances, but it's an elf going through an existential crisis and trying to figure out who they are. And I think there are some, I mean, Fred Claus, you know, Vince Vaughn, we, that's, that's a favorite of mine as well. You know, he kind of, he's a fish out of water in the reverse. I mean, he's a human who gets called to the North pole because of his brother and and everything. Um, So I think we've seen a fair few Christmas movies with a fish out of water theme. So I didn't think it did anything totally new um, in the genre. I just think it did it well. I just think Will Ferrell was awesome. Um, So I gave it a six for novelty. Well, for me, novelty was a 6.5. And the reason I knocked down novelty is first of all, and I didn't realize this was a direct take in large part from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer claymation. But I'm thinking about this. Innocence lost in New York City in a department store trying to convey what the meaning of Christmas is. This is... Oh, I always Miracle get this. on 34th Street? Yes, Miracle on 34th Street. Instead of 
it being Santa, it's an elf. And so I think to some extent that that's exactly what the film is based on. So it's more original and the storyline is more modern and where it's going with it. So I went with a, with a 6.5 for that reason. So that's a 6.83 average between the three of us. Classicness. I have to start on this one. First off, we have the cheap laugh for Peter Dinklage. It's got to be mentioned because in a modern sense, I don't think you can do that joke in 2022. Because it's 2003, we can kind of poke fun and laugh at it yet without feeling too bad about ourselves. But in a modern sense, do you really think we can get away with the short people jokes like that? Probably not. Also, the antics of Will Ferrell don't appeal to everyone. And so even though I think this is a broadly appealing movie, there are still people that just don't like Will Ferrell because he has this physical and kind of almost sugar rush quality to him in how he does his comedy. But I think the primary thing that doesn't age well is the shower singing scene. In a children's movie that's a PG-rated movie, we have him showing up in the bathroom while she's showering and then mentioning afterward whether he was trying to be a creepy stalker that snuck into the bathroom to see her while she was naked. Two, what was she singing? The anthem of all Christmas music about creepers. Oh, baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> a song that we have subsequently basically canceled from that entire scene, which was a thrown-in aspect, and I don't think that you really need. You could have had that at almost any other junction. You do not need to have it where he sees her in the shower. It could have been much more innocent than that. I just think that the scene by itself doesn't work. So if I'm starting at my baseline seven, and we're going with at least a half point off for the Peter Dinklage scene. And I would say you can at least lop off another point and a half for the shower scene. I will add back in a point for somewhat of a timelessness to this film because I do think that almost 20 years in the public eye and most people still enjoy this movie and it's broadly appealing and it's pretty much everywhere, as we've said, on cable or streaming or whatever. I think that adds a point back. I end up at a six. Uh, I had a 7.5 and you make a lot of fair points. I will not lie about the shower scene. You're not wrong, but it's a hell of a, a melody, isn't it? They're just, you know, it's great to sing. I know. Sounds good when two people sing it. But in a post me too world, it really doesn't work. Yeah, it isn't great. <laughs> but the Peter Dinklage thing, I actually think would work only because it's Peter, like Peter Dinklage is the one, like, obviously, you're not going to do that without his consent. I mean, he didn't sign on for this movie. And then Will Ferrell just started calling him an elf. I think it wouldn't work if, you know, if they were making fun of, you know, little people without him there, I think definitely. So I think it might work as long as you have that Peter Dinklage character. But yeah, I had a 7.5. I think, uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a classic. It's a Christmas classic to me. So that gets like 7.5. And I do think you make a fair point on the Peter Dinklage scene and that's why i only took off about a half a point instead of like a full point because i don't think that it's over the top but it's still going for a rather cheap laugh but it's also like you said from the perspective of his four-year-old that's true and you know a four-year-old 
in this scenario, if they thought they were an elf, they would probably look at Dinklage and think, you know, and it wouldn't be in like a malicious way or just be, oh, that's an elf. Yeah, it's one of the kids say the darndest things type thing. Yeah. I, I went a little higher. I went with an eight for classicness. And I I took points off. I understand with with Dinklage what the situation is, but I, I think that he <laughs> didn't obviously have a problem with it. When you have children, your children will say things or point to things. People who are different or who have disabilities or problems because they're innocent. They don't understand what's going on and they comment on them. I remember one particular child of mine who, when people would sneeze, uh, thought that was the funniest thing on the face of the earth and would laugh until his toes curled and people would look at you. I have no recollection of this at all. Well, you were in a in a bassinet, more or less, like a stroller. Okay, that explains. Or the a little. time that you got out of the car and went up to the person and said, "You know, you should quit smoking because you're going to die." That's a good take. That aged well. Yeah, I, I think I'm ahead of the curve on that one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I take it that these situations, both with with Peter Dinklage and with the shower scene. It's Buddy acting like he's a four-year-old. How many times do guys walk in just like, Mommy, and Mom's in the shower, and don't think anything of it? Because it doesn't matter. They're not thinking anything more than, you know, he's listening to the music, and that's what drum. Yeah, it's a little bit creepy now in the context of what we're going through and what the situation is and the... Uh, and what we've highlighted as far as, unfortunately, what women have had to endure. But I don't think I give it as quite as much of a slapdown for that reason as you do. So that's why I went with an eight. Again, I'm not going to focus so much on the creepiness aspect as the unnecessary aspect. It's not a scene that needs to be in the movie. Is it creepier that he's in an elf costume, or would it be creepier if he was not in an elf costume? It would be creepier if he was not in an elf costume. Okay, fair enough. Well, I think it's in there because it, again, shows that what endures him to her is that there's nothing sexual about it. But you can't also have this be part of this innocent relationship when that scene is a part of it. It makes no sense as far as logically through the course of how the movie progresses. Why would the woman who's questioning why she saw him in the locker room while she was showering, all of a sudden be drawn to him to go eat food. I would have thought she would have sworn him off. Well, I think it's probably a lot of the way he reacts when she catches him. Like, he, I mean, he immediately covers his eyes and, and just face plants into the lockers, which is quite funny. But I think she realizes in that moment that he's not just like some guy, you know, trying to hook up with her. That he actually is has an, a sweetness about him. Rewatchability. I have this at a 6.5. Enjoyable, short, and I like Will Ferrell. It's just not a favorite Christmas movie of mine, nor is it one of his best, in my opinion. All right, uh, I had a nine. I, I love rewatching this. The only reason I didn't give it a ten is because I don't really care for the ending all that much. As soon as Walter quits his job and like they have this whole thing and with the park rangers and everything and the singing in the street, I don't know. 
it just it became like a classic hallmark movie like love will endure and but up until that point it, this is a banger for me i love it so i gave it a nine i went with an eight because yeah i'll watch this it's probably not every christmas i'll watch it every other two out of three i don't need to see this every year and so i gave it a little bit down for that reason it's fun it has some meaning. The ending is a little contrived and predictable, but okay. So in case I didn't give the average on the last category for classicness, we had a 7.17 average. For rewatchability, we've had a 7.83 average. Audience score for this one, we had an 89% for Google users, and we had a 79% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 84 so to recap the categories, we had a 8.5 for Legacy, 8.17 for Impact Significance, 6.83 for Novelty, 7.17 for Classicness, 7.83 for Rewatchability, and an 8.4 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 46.9. And that would put it on the list between Iron Man and The Man Who Knew Too Much, the remake from 1956. Look at that, John Favreau. Back to back. Yep. Final or remaining questions. I have one question that I think is undermining of the entire premise of this film. It is said during the opening portions, or at least right after Buddy is discovered walking or crawling out of Santa's sack, and I don't mean that as a euphemism, that Santa has a soft spot for children. Now, we never meet Mrs. Claus in this, but it's assumed there is a Mrs. Claus. And Buddy is clearly a human. So, if Mrs. Claus has almost nothing to do all year and is childless, why didn't Santa and Mrs. Claus raise Buddy themselves instead of the elves where he would be out of place? Well, first of all, why are you assuming Mrs. Claus isn't doing anything all year? I'm sure she's got many responsibilities. I would assume most of the elves would do the house cleaning. What is she going to charity events? <laughs> hey, you never know. Misogynist. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. That's a good question. I mean, I also, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I also had a question of why didn't Santa just bring Buddy back? Like he has all this Christmas magic. Why couldn't he just like bring him back? So I, I don't know. He made a lot of questionable decisions there. I don't get it. Santa has a big heart and he knew Bob Newhart wanted to have a child. So he was willing to sacrifice his own interest for the good of the elf. And labor. I mean, God, he, he could be, a you know, in the labor oh, force, yeah. he, could, he could be useful. He gets the smoke detectors. No one's checked those yeah. in, in centuries, o- probably. O- always so. puts the star on top of the tree. I'm sorry. I, unless Santa just didn't want kids, which would be somewhat explainable, I just don't understand it. Well, maybe Santa's just uh, has a soft spot for kids for about five minutes, and after that, they're just annoying. (laughs) Or he's got grandparent syndrome. He wants all the good moments and then sends them back to their parents for all the bad ones. Yeah. Any other remaining questions from any of you? Oh, yeah, I got some. Did you have any? I don't. I have one more that's... Oh, okay, all right. I have one more that's for my mother, but I'll save it. Okay. <laughs> I'll I'll do the little one because I think I definitely know at least one of your answers. Is this Will Ferrell's most iconic role? Not his best, 
No. But the one he will be most remembered for, really. What do you think he'll be most remembered for then, other than Elf? Anchorman. You think so? Yes. Now, again, it, it depends on which audience you're asking, but for the people that this movie resonates with, other than that it's broadly appealing to people who aren't Will Ferrell fans, but I think even they know Anchorman a little bit more than they see him as Elf. I think Anchorman is the one that would be first on his Hall of Fame plaque. Well, his best role, but I feel like... It's not even best role, but I think when you think of Will Ferrell, you picture him in that 70s style suit with the hair and the mustache. See, I picture him as Elf. I think 50 years I think fifty years from now it's going to be Elf because... And for the reason, the reason is because Elf is like such a seasonal phenomenon that every Christmas it's plastered everywhere. Whereas Anchorman, you know, it's on FX every five weeks, but it's not the sort of cultural phenomenon that Elf is. And I think while it's not his best role, I think it will be what he's most remembered for when, you know, when we're very old. As an attorney, I'm trained to use people's own words against them. Your comment has always been that comedy is a it is limited to the time frame by which it is done. That t- comedy gets outdated or stale or... Yeah, usually within a 20-year cycle. Yes, I've said that yes. many times. Anchorman will fade because of that. It, it will not be funny to a new generation. Whereas the buffoonery of, of Will Ferrell being Buddy will continue to resonate because it's timeless. I'm not sure that's true. I think the same antics are both there. They're two broadly different films, but they're literally the same year. And how many Christmas comedies still hold up for all of their humor if you were to see them today? For example, I think you and I have somewhat of a soft spot for Scrooged, but did you ask the new person who saw it, who happens to be Sarah's boyfriend, what he thought of the film when he first saw it. I think for him, I don't know if it's going to be as humorous as it is for you and I, because we saw it at a different moment in time. I think he really enjoyed it. He thought it was funny. Oh, and then maybe it holds up a little bit longer than some other ones. I'm just saying, with the cyclical nature of this, it's not like this is a sentimental Christmas movie in the way that some other Christmas movies are. And so by that standpoint, your really best argument is going to be that this becomes his most identifiable role only because it's the most broadly appealing to a general mass audience. Yeah. Uh, would you say it's his, his top two? Would you? Because I, I think Anchorman would be number two for him. Probably. Would you say it's two or would you, th- you think there's something else? Yeah, you have to be it? a real feral fan to start identifying with him as Ricky Bobby or as um, Jackie Moon. He, well, Jackie Moon's like a really <laughs> deep pull for most people. Uh, I can't remember his character from Blades of Glory, but I was trying to think of Brennan from Step Brothers. Yeah, so and I think those are certain comedies that appeal with maybe a very close generation of mine. Like people of my dad's generation or older don't like Will Ferrell at all because there's too much as far as like an ADHD nature to him that they don't like his kind of like high strung sugar rush nature as a comedian. I think that is unappealing to them and their 
sophisticated way they hold themselves and how their comedy was structured, you know, back in the uh, Stone Age. But, <sighs> but uh, yeah, I would say Anchorman is the most recognizable because I think it's the comedy that most people can point to that they know he's from. Whereas, you know, Ricky Bobby is just not one that's going to come up for a lot of people unless you're from a particular audience. I, I just, I think it's, obviously it's one of those two films. Problem comes in that when an actor does a film, it's not their best role. It's not their greatest film. It's the one that, I think back and I, I you know, I, I saw a documentary about alcohol in America, how it was developed. And Anheuser-Busch decided which formula to use for Budweiser, not based upon what people thought was the most popular, but which the most people put on their list of top three, because he was trying to appeal to a broader audience. He didn't want it to be the best beer or the one that was the most popular to a small group of people. He wanted the broadest appeal. And an actor's film and film log and I'm using actor generically or non-gender, is based on what transcends generations. James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, will be remembered for It's a Wonderful Life a lot longer and more predominantly than Vertigo, Rear Window. uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Philadelphia Story. Yes, because... That film transcends generations and has a theme that's common to humanity that is not generational. It's not limited to a particular generation. And so this film for Will Ferrell will survive longer than any of his other comedies. Well, let's take it from this standpoint. We could do another theoretical test. If you were to do word association. You say an actor's name and you tell somebody first role that pops into your mind. I think then that would answer your question. And you do it with the broadest audience possible. Much like dad was supposed to run a simulated study on his office staff that he still has yet to do. Yeah, I know. I know. I forgot again. I know. All right. Well, that was that was much more rousing than I expected. That was fun. Um, I have two more. Big picture here. I've always been confused by Christmas movies because in all these movies with a Santa Claus, the premise is the kids think the parents get the toy or the presents, right? That's the whole thing. And the and the parents don't believe. What do these parents think is happening? Because every Christmas morning, they're going downstairs and seeing seven different presents wrapped and say from Santa that they didn't get. So where do they think those are coming from? Where do they think the cookies and milk is going that they were supposed to eat that they didn't? What do these parents think is happening? It's one of the fundamental flaws of most of these movies that there's Christmas magic that powers something or there's losing so much spirit and thus Santa's no longer going to be magical. I agree with you. If you're going to make the point of saying there's no more Christmas magic because people don't believe in Santa and that the parents are doing it, So universally or across the world, the parents are replacing Santa somehow, but Santa still has a job. It just doesn't make any sense. No, I mean, it could be that Santa forgot one of the bags of presents down on the shelf in the storage room downstairs. (laughs) So the mice could eat it? 
Yeah. But no, it's, it's, (laughs) I mean, it's not a situation where you have to have certain level of unbelievability. Otherwise you're going to have parents who are checking their ring doorbell feeds, trying to see who came in their house and ate the cookies. That's the Christmas movie I want. I want parents hunting Santa down because they're like, this is some whack stuff. And they even make a point of saying Walter's on the naughty list, which implies that parents are on the nice list, which implies they get presents as well. Oh. So they, th- they think their seven-year-old just bought him a Rolex. Like, wh- what do they think is happening there? That is a film where the Christmas magic happens and the kids and Santa and the parents go ballistic trying to figure <laughs> out who the hell has been doing this stuff. And they no longer, they're the jaded ones. Oh, that sounds like a Christmas classic. Well, okay. (laughs) We have the reporter who is on the nice list and is supposed to ask for a ring from her boyfriend. How is Santa supposed to deliver that? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Passes magic over the boyfriend who is ready to actually finally commit. True. True. Um, now I have one last question. Have the people at Green Bay Publishing ever read a book? Ever. These people, when pre- the top two writers at this company, when presented with the ultimatum, like your job depends on your next pitch, their first survival instinct is bring in another writer. That's concerning. And then their, their first pitch is a tomato on a farm. And then their second pitch is a gaggle of asparagus. I don't know the collective noun for asparagus. I'm going to go with gaggle. A gaggle of asparagus who are self-conscious about their urine. Have, have these people ever read a book? And they're publishing books that don't even have endings. Like, what are we doing? I think that's kind of the point, is that they're supposedly bad at their job. Otherwise, what's the point? This isn't like big, where the conglomerate, there's like a reason behind all of that, and the toy company and the executives actually have a reason to exist. This one is more, we need a very hollow backstory where it's going to be cutesy, and we can write in some other stuff. Because if you tried to give too much to the high-powered executive story plotline in this, the movie is all of a sudden going to be like 120 minutes as opposed to 90. True. And unfortunately, we like to think of Innocence and such, and Dr. Seuss, who didn't, Theodore Geisel, who supposedly didn't like children, and who wrote um, Cat in the Hat based on a bet with Bennett Cerf, who was the publisher uh, owned random house said that he couldn't write an entire book and use only 50 words and bet him 50 bucks. There's a lot of things in life that are jaded that you try to present as being more, Oh, noble and altruistic than they really are. My biggest issue with the whole writer's pitch was Miles Finch walks into the room And he says a tomato is too vulnerable. And his best idea is instead of the tomato, we have a peach. What's more vulnerable than a peach? Yeah, I don't know. It's concerning, though, that their first instinct is, well, I don't want to bet my work, my career on my writing. So let's bring in someone else. Well, even James Kahn says that initially. (laughs) And then he immediately warms to it because he's like, all right, if you guys don't have a good pitch, I, I have no choice. (laughs) all right my final question and this is in honor of my mother who is always worried about this when we're talking about regular people food but how did the elves get any protein 
They had to do something with the old reindeer. (laughs) Damn. Those medical charts can't look good. What's going on up there, but it can't look good. I don't know what the specialist is for diabetes, but he's got to be making a mint off the elves. (laughs) Yeah. It's an endocrinologist. Yeah. uh, Not great. All right. Final thoughts for the week. I have nothing. Yeah, check out the streaming circuit. Uh, we took a little break. There was uh, some co-host upheaval in the last season, I'll say. So we took a break, sorted it out, coming back in a couple weeks, the beginning of the new year. Kind of a, a revamped show. I'm excited. Tom's going to be coming on to join me for an episode in the first season. But we do have the entire collection of Pixar films up there on podcast form. 21st Century Comedies did like, 21 22 movies um so you can go check out that entire library and by the time you're done with that you'll probably be ready for the new season so go check out the streaming circuit on spotify and at the Circuitverse on twitter where you can catch all my stuff on movies and sports i do a lot of sports writing too i got a bone to pick with your nba writer but that's, that's another time and place I'm ex- when you come on my pod we're going to open with that so keep that in mind oh, i definitely because i'm the nba writer so I, somebody else had the byline on one of those. I swear. Oh, I, Adam Ross is the name I go okay. under. It's my middle name. I just go by that. Ah, um, well, everything then, you uh, read is from me. So, all right, I'm excited to hear your bone. Okay. Well, I can I can pick many a bone on many a subject, but <laughs> I guess my final thoughts. I usually reserve this space for some recommendations, so I will make another one for a show that I finally caught up with. It is in its second season of 2022. Now, just think about having to release two different seasons within the same calendar year. But because it's kind of a British-style show, it's very limited in the amount of episodes it's releasing. It's about an hour apiece for each one. And so it's very short seasons, but they're all based on a series of books that are spy novels. I finally caught up with Slow Horses that's in the middle of its second season. It's on Apple TV Plus right now. And I think it has one of the better characters on TV right now, played by Gary Oldman. It's an enjoyable watch. He is the antithesis of anything that you'd find in any other spy genre because he is the worst potential spy, and yet he seems to never be wrong about anything that he's doing. So it's a great contrast to all of the action spy thrillers that we've gotten for years. These are the guys that aren't supposed to get things right, but seemingly somehow stumble upon the truth every single time. So it's a a good blend of comedy, a little bit of action, and uh, definitely some intrigue and thriller nature to it. So I will recommend that for the show this week. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, for our final episode of Season 3, we will be discussing possibly the best romantic comedy of all time, with 1989's When Harry Met Sally. Directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron, starring Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal, Bruno Kirby, and Carrie Fisher. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. 
please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronniedunkinstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.